Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Greetings, boys and girls. It's your friend, the Crypt Keeper. And I, too, took a left at the valley. <laughs> I know we shouldn't have to scream that we're atheists. You know, we don't have non-astrologers and all that. But with the religious people taking over the world, I mean, we can either speak up or be pushed into a corner. I'm proud to be an atheist, a skeptic, a non-believer, an infidel, a heathen, I call it how I see it. I say it's ignorance and you just call it faith and unsubstantiated claims. That's something to be ashamed. I'm an atheist. Atheist, atheist. <laughs> Coming at you from spooky Abbotsford, BC, this is Ghost in the Valley. My name is Kevin, and I tell you that if you divide the circumference of a jack-o'-lantern by its diameter, you get pumpkin pie. <laughs> Joining me as usual is the haunting team of your nightmares, who, whom all of a sudden, they're... <laughs> Their cobwebs are now decorations. <laughs> she was referring to petrified wood when she talked about a Halloween boner, Nancy. <laughs> I, I, I honestly thought you were going to say something about my parking my broom at the door. <laughs> I was all prepared for the no, breaking. No, the broom is mine. <laughs> the only candy he's interested in swings from a pole and it has daddy issues, Scott. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> get in trouble here. Someone rolled her eyes at her, so she kept them, Christina. And they're very beautiful on my necklace with all the other pairs I have. <laughs> and she crossed Bambi with a ghost. Now she has bamboo. Kirsten. <laughs> oh, guys, welcome to our annual Ghost in the Valley. Oh man, we have we have to work our way up or work our way down from the, from the intro. We hit rock bottom a couple of shows ago, remember? <laughs> I guess we're on our way up now. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> welcome, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. Today we're going to have a great show. We're not going to do our show as usual. We're not going to be having our normal segments. We're just going to be telling those f- stories around the campfire. Mm. So speaking of campfire, we'll ask Scott to set up a campfire right away. So there you go. Campfire is There we lit. go, man. I'm fast. Oh, you're Very good. fast. You're good. You must have been a Boy Scout. Was. No, I was an air cadet, but that's okay. <laughs> we learned how to make fire, too. <laughs> Close enough. Halloween is my favorite time of the year. I don't know about you guys. I just love, love the holiday. Christmas is the best, I'm sorry. Oh, no. Christmas is the best. The comments of Christina and unnecessary those <laughs> of the cast of Ghost of the Valley. <laughs> well, you don't have to live with her. <laughs> oh, that's true. Anybody have any special feelings about Halloween? I didn't hear that. <laughs> Leave the mic alone. <laughs> I thought we should try doing with that mic. <laughs> the night before Christmas. That's my favorite. Oh, fair enough. That oh. is a ghost story. You guys are all fired. 
I, I enjoy Halloween just because of the kids when they put their costumes on and the trick or treating. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're having such a good time. That's that's what that's what's and the campfire and the ghost stories are on yes. the campfire. Speaking of uh, history, you got we're not doing a, this say this this day in history segment, but do you have a bit of a history to tell us about Halloween? Why, yes, well, Kevin, I do. <laughs> so, <laughs> what if the author would know that? I mean, that's <laughs> true. Was any doubt? I mean, since since I was around at the beginning of Halloween, it's only <laughs> it's only fitting that I give a little tribute to it. Yes, this is the ancient origins of, of Halloween. It's been around, believe it or not, um, for about two thousand years, and it goes back to the ancient Celtic festival of Samhain. And it's spelled S-A-M-H-A-I-N. So when I say so in, maybe people aren't going to connect it with the word that they've read. But that's where it was 2,000 years ago in an area that's now Ireland, the United Kingdom, and northern France. And back in those days, they celebrated their new year on November the 1st. And the day marked the end of the summer and the harvest, uh, and the beginning of the harvest and beginning of the dark, cold winter. And it was a time of year that was often associated with human death. So the Celts believed that on the night before the new year, the boundary between the worlds of the living and the dead became blurred. And on that night of October 31st, they celebrated Samhain when it was believed that the ghosts of the dead returned to Earth. So that's how long ago this myth, you know, uh, started. So in addition to causing trouble and damaging crops, the Celts thought that the presence of the otherworldly spirits made it easier for the Druids, who were the Celtic priests, to make predictions about the future. So for people entirely dependent on the volatile natural world, those prophecies were an important source of comfort and direction during the long, dark winter. So to commemorate the event, the Druids built huge sacred bonfires where the people gathered to burn crops and animals as sacrifices to the deities. Uh, During the celebration, they wore costumes, typically consisting of animal heads and skins, and attempted to tell each other's fortunes. When the celebration was over, they relit their hearth fires, which they had extinguished earlier that evening from the sacred bonfire to help protect them from the coming winter. So there are elements of the beginnings that are still with us today. And then by 43 AD, the Roman Empire conquered the majority of Celtic territory, so they took it over. And um, in 609 AD, Pope Boniface dedicated the Pantheon in Rome to the honor of Christian martyrs, and the Catholic Feast of All Martyrs Day was established. Um, then by the 9th century, the influence of Christianity had spread to Celtic lands, and it generally blended with and supplanted, supplanted the older Celtic rites. So in 1000 AD, the church would make November 2nd All Souls Day in order to honor the dead. Freaking Christians, always ruining a good thing. <laughs> yeah, they, that's they for sure. They just can't help themselves. Yeah, so then we had the um, the All Saints Day, and the night before it was the traditional sowing night of the Celtics, and that began to be called All, All Hallows' Eve, and eventually 
Halloween. So uh, several centuries after that, of course, di- different ethnic groups did various things to um, to celebrate or to suppress the holiday. Uh, when it came to America, it was suppressed because of the, the Protestants. But then in the second half of the 19th century, new immigrants came in and Halloween got very, very popular. And today, um, the trick-or-treat tradition and Halloween is actually um, one of the favorite holidays. Anybody want to guess how much Americans, uh, I think in, perhaps maybe including North, uh, us as well, North America, anybody want to guess how much money is spent on Halloween? Definitely. I mean, including costumes and trick-or-treats and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Definitely probably over like $10 billion. Actually, you're close. Six billion. Ah, yeah, very, very. I knew close. it was in the billions. Yeah, I was going yeah. to say four point seven three five billion. <laughs> yeah. and fifty cents. And fifty cents. And fifty cents. <laughs> so Halloween has pretty well rocked along without any. I mean, there's been some history of um, uh, um, destruction. You know, some mischief making and things like that. But I think Halloween has changed significantly over the past four or five years with um, some in, in American culture thinking that costumes are actually an appropriation of various cultures and ethnic groups. Mm-hmm. And so now there's prohibitions and feelings about, well, should I wear this costume? Does it degrade a certain group? Should I not? So I think it may be changing a little. And from, from, from a cultural, from my cultural point of view, I think it, it's not going to be as much fun, but it depends on your, on your point of view. And that's brings up to today. Time will tell. Time will tell. Time will tell. All right. So who wants to go with our first ghost story? You know what? Let's go with Christina. You want to do? What are you, what are you trying to do today? What kind um, of ghost story? I am going to be reading the The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe. That's a classic. It is, and it, it's one of my favorite stories. Well, put, technically a poem. Put some moon music behind. <laughs> okay. Once upon a midnight dreary. While I pondered, weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. "'Tis some visitor,' I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. Only this and nothing more. Ah, distinctly I remember, it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow, vainly I sought to borrow from my book's secrece of sorrow, sorrow from the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels named Lenore, nameless here forevermore. And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never before, so that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood, repeating, "'Tis some visitor, entreating entrance at my chamber door, some late visitor, entreating entrance at my chamber door. Tis this, and nothing more." Presently my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer. "'Sir,' said I, or madame, truly, your forgiveness I implore. And so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarcely was sure I heard you. 
Here I opened wide the door. Darkness there and nothing more. (laughs) Deep into the darkness peering, long I stood there wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortals ever dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore? Then I with this I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word, Lenore. Merely this, and nothing more. Back into the chamber turning, all my soul within me burning, soon again I heard a tapping, something louder than before. Surely, said I, surely this is something at my window, Lattice. Let me see, then, what threat is, and this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a moment, and this mystery explore. Tis the wind, and nothing more. Open here I flung the shutter, when, with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped a stately raven of the stately days of yore. Not the least of since made he, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but the mine of lord or lady perched above my chamber door, perched upon the bust of Palis just above my chamber door, perched and sat, and nothing more. Then this ebony bird, beguiling my sad fancy into smiling, by the grave and stern doctrine of this countenance it wore, through thy crest be shorn and shaven, thou, I said, art sure no craven, ghost, ghastly grim and ancient raven, wandering from the nightly shore. Tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's platonium shore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Much I marveled this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly, through it answered little meaning, little relevancy bore. For we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door, bird or beast upon the sculptured bust above his chamber door, with such a name as nevermore. But the raven, sitting lonely in the placid bust, spoke only that one word, as if his soul in that one word he did outpour. Nothing further then he uttered, not a farther, not a feather, then he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered. Other friends have flown before, on the marrow he will leave me, as my hopes have flown before. Then the bird said, nevermore. Startled at the stillness broken by reply so aptly spoken, Doubtless, I said, what it utters is its only stock in store, caught from some unhappy master whom unmercifully disaster followed fast and followed faster till his songs one burden bore, till the dyers of his hope that melancholy burden bore of never, never more. But the raven still beguiled all my sad soul into smiling, Straight I wheeled a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door. Then, upon the velvet sinking, I betook myself to linking. Fancy unto fancy, thinking that this ominous bird of yore 
what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, and ominous bird of yore meant in croaking nevermore. This I sat engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing to the fowl whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining, with my head at ease reclining, on the cushion's velvet lining, with the lamplight go loading o'er. But whose velvet violent lining, with the lamplight gloating o'er, she shall press, ah, nevermore. Then, methought the air grew denser, perfumed from an unseen censer, swung by a seraphim whose footfalls tinkled on the tuft floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent thee, by these angels he hath sent thee, respite, respite and repent from thy memories of Lenore. Quaff, oh quaff this kind Nephrev, and forget this lost Lenore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, where the temper sent, or where the tempest tossed thee here ashore, desolate yet all undaunted, on this desert land enchanted, on this home by horror haunted, tell me truly, I implore, is there, is there balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, I said, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, by that heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore, tell this soul with sorrow laden if, within this distant Eden, it shall clasp a sainted maiden whom the angels named Lenore. Clasp a rare and radiant maiden whom the angels named Lenore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Be that word our sign of parting, bird or fiend, I shrieked, upstarting. Get thee back into the tempest and the night's Latonian shore. Leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul has spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken. Quiet the bust above my door. Take thy break from out my heart and take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven, nevermore. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting. On the pallid bust of Palis, just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming. And the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore. I'm sorry, Kevin, I'm not hearing you. I'm sorry, I forgot to turn my damn <laughs> button on. <laughs> we could hear you through the room. It's, but the, we it's the influence of the raven. I had nothing the important raven to say. Had it, the raven had it. Yeah, I mean, that's, what, that's what it was. was there. I, I had nothing important to say anyway. So, <laughs> like usual. Speaking of horror, while our next story terror comes up, Halloween is great for survival uh, for horror movies. And here are the top ten survival tips if you find yourself in a horror movie. This is needed to know information for everyone. That's right. Ten. Don't run upstairs. Never. (laughs) Never run upstairs. Never. It never works. You get out of the house. Number nine. Drop the camera. 
The guy yeah. with the camera always gets killed. Uh oh. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> Even if it's a phone. Also, also there phone. are better things you can be holding. Yes. That's like right. a knife. Yeah, a gun. Or better yet, yeah. throw the camera. Throw, yeah, use the camera <laughs> on the assailant. Good thinking, Chris. Good this thinking. might sound stupid, but number eight is call the police. <laughs> Oh, yeah, most people don't think that, about don't that. Do that. That pulls, I mean, that closes things down so fast. I know, I know. <laughs> Unless you're in the middle of nowhere without cell service. Exactly. <laughs> I, that, that, I, can, I can put that one on. Um, number seven, always check the car before getting in it. There's always <laughs> yeah. a killer in the backseat. Yeah, that's there right. always is a slasher in the backseat. Number six, sounds pretty simple. Avoid creepy places. <laughs> Curiosity kills in movies, oh. in horror movies. <laughs> I mean, we can't go visit the old asylum. No, that's been you haunted know, for years. the old abandoned amusement park. <laughs> you know, the haunted forest. No, you stay out of these places. Number five, you avoid contacting the spirit world. It never ends well. Um, in excuse horror. me, Ouija boards are the funnest. Yes, they are. So and they're <laughs> never on. They're never on the side of the no. intended victim. And you know what? It's costing you nine ninety nine to buy a Ouija board from McDonald's. <laughs> so you're off. To, you're out 10 bucks on top of that. Okay. Number four, keep your pants on. Sex scenes equal death. (laughs) That just takes all the fun out of dying. But you know what? In horror movies, only the virgins are safe. Not necessarily. (laughs) Not necessarily. Could start with the virgin. I wonder what you're referring to. Number three, you got to listen to any and all warnings. You got to be gullible to the max, no matter how outrageous the story. Don't read the book that says do not read. (laughs) (laughs) Number two, finish the job. He or she is never actually dead. It's, it's called the double tap. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and number one, never ever split from the group and get really Ooh. good at running. Yeah, <laughs> cardio. It's a useful skill. <laughs> Remember, the slowest of you is the first to get it. <laughs> I feel right. so much better. I just, I, I think maybe we should make little cards and print them uh, out. Also, another rule, don't read things in languages you do not understand. <laughs> just don't do it. Well, you know. You mean like the book of ne- Necromon- uh, Necronomicon? Yeah. That's it. Or, yeah. or the menu at Burger King. I mean, your Burger King them, works the same know. way. Yes. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you could summon the devil. the devil from Burger King. <laughs> All right. Who is our next storyteller? Oh, let me go. Oh, Woo-hoo. Scott. Oh, oh. Yes. Do you want some more sound effects? Are you good with what no, we I, I think I'm good with the sound effects. Okay. The story I've chosen tonight, today, well, I guess we can say tonight, The Ghosts of Flight 401. In the 1970s, tales of ghostly apparitions flew around the USA and the rest of the airline world. Passengers, cabin crew, pilots, flight engineers, even top airline executives all claimed to have seen something aboard certain aircraft. Before we begin the spooky tale, we must go back to the 29th of December in 1972. On board an Eastern Airlines Lockheed L-1011, registration N310EA, as it descended towards Miami on its flight from JFK Airport in New York. The mood on board Flight 401 was upbeat. 163 passengers and 13 crew were looking forward to enjoying the new year in in the Florida sunshine. The four-month-old L-1011, known as a TriStar, was the pride of Eastern's fleet. 
As the crew prepared for landing, the first in a chain of events occurred which would eventually lead to the loss of 101 lives. First, Al first officer Albert Stockstill was instructed to lower the landing gear. Alarmingly, the crew noticed that not all the wheel indicator lights had turned green. Captain Bob Loft believed that it was a faulty light bulb. Stockstill struggled to remove the bulb. While flight engineer Don Repo went down to the avionics bay, or the hellhole as it was referred to, situated below the flight deck to visually check if the gear was down. As the pilots attempted to resolve the issue, they failed to notice that the autopilot had disengaged and they were now slowly descending towards the Everglades. The TriStar was traveling at 227 miles per hour when it slammed into the alligator-infested swamp just outside of Miami. Many passengers were killed instantly, and those that did survive faced an agonizing wait for rescuers to reach the craft site. First Officer Stockstill died on impact, while Repo and Loft survived the initial crash. As the rescue was slow coming, Loft died at the scene, while Repo died later in hospital. Tragically, it was later revealed that the nose wheel had indeed been locked in place, and it was the bulb that was faulty. Although the majority of the aircraft was destroyed, certain parts, such as the galley, were salvageable. Eastern Airlines and Lockheed agreed that these parts could be reused and fitted into other TriStars on the production line. One such aircraft was registration number N318EA, and as the weeks and months passed, strange things began to occur. In 1973, at JFK Airport, an Eastern Airlines TriStar was boarding for its flight to Miami. Traveling that morning was one of the airline's vice presidents. As a VIP passenger, he was allowed onto the aircraft first and made his way into the first-class cabin. As he moved towards his seat, he noticed a company captain in full uniform and went over to have a chat. During the ensuing conversation, he realized he was speaking to Bob Loft. The apparition quickly disappeared, and the vice president rushed off to find a crew member terrified that this could be a bad omen. A search of the aircraft was carried out before any other passengers boarded, finding no sign of the mystery captain. A few months later, again at JFK, a crew boarding the same aircraft were surprised to see Loft already on board. They apparently chatted with the ghost, not realizing who he was, before he vanished right before their eyes. The flight was later cancelled as the crew were too shaken to operate. On L-10... 11s, flight engineers would usually arrive before the other crew to carry out their pre-flight checks. On one particular day, a flight engineer was stunned to see an Eastern second officer already sitting in his seat. He immediately recognized him as Don Repo. The apparition said to him, you don't need to worry about the pre-flight, I've already done it, then disappeared right before his eyes. A few weeks later, Another captain was checking the instruments before a flight from Miami to Atlanta. Staring him right in the face was the unmistakable outline of Repo's face. The captain claimed he distinctly heard the words, there will never be another crash on an L-1011. We will not let it happen. During a flight from Atlanta to Miami on board N-318EA, another aircraft in the fleet, the flight deck crew were enjoying their meal as they cruised at 39,000 feet. Suddenly, there was a loud knocking coming from the hellhole. Stories of the apparitions had been circulating around the company, so the crew were reluctant to look. The knocking continued, and the flight engineer opened the hatch. He was horrified to see the face of Don Repo staring back at him. Terrifyingly, 
This was where the engineer was when Flight 401 crashed. It wasn't just flight crews who saw the ghostly apparitions. On one occasion, several carriers loading that aircraft, N318EA, for its next flight were seen rushing off the jet and refusing to get back on. When asked why, they all stated that they had seen a flight engineer standing in the forward galley before vanishing right before their eyes. Passengers also reported strange occurrences. A woman who had sat next to an eastern pilot said he looked ill. She called a stewardess only for the pilot to disappear. Another lady summoned a crew member as she was concerned about the unresponsive pilot sitting next to her. The man once again disappeared, leaving the passenger hysterical. After these incidents, both women were shown pictures of the deceased 401 flight crew, both identifying Don Repo as the crew member they had seen. So far, the majority of the reports of spooky happenings have been swiftly swept under the rug by Eastern. What airline would want passengers thinking that their aircraft are haunted by dead flight crew who had perished on board the Pride of the Fleet? Although the airline steadfastly refused to believe the spooky stories, the sightings were all reported in the Independent Flight Safety Foundation, uh, sorry, reported to the Independent Flight Safety Foundation, who later commented, the reports were given by experienced and trustworthy pilots and crew. We consider them significant. Eastern went on to warn employees that they could face dismissal if they were caught spreading the ghost stories. One incident later on changed everything. Flight 903 had just taken off from JFK en route to Mexico City. A stewardess was in the galley preparing the meals for the passengers. As she reached for the handle of the oven, the oven door, she was horrified to see the face of Don Repo staring back at her. Not one to panic easily, she quickly made her way to the front to get another stewardess and the aircraft engineer to come and take a look. Arriving at the galley, the three of them saw Repo's face still staring out from the oven, although now it looked like he was trying to say something. All of them clearly heard him utter the words, watch out for fire in this plane. This was the oven that had been salvaged from Flight 401 and fitted on board N318. There were no further incidents on the flight to Mexico City. On the return leg to JFK, problems began with the aircraft's starboard engine. After an inspection, the aircraft was cleared before takeoff. But as the plane climbed, the engine failed. It was quickly shut down before it caught fire and they returned to the airport. No one was hurt during the incident, but the crew were understandably shaken after what they had seen on the oven door. As the sightings became more and more frequent, rumors circulated that the pilots and crew were refusing to fly on the L-1011s that had been fitted with the parts from the doomed jet. All of the salvaged parts from 401 were later removed from the aircraft they had been installed on. The ghosts of Bob Loft and Don Repo were never seen again. But their haunting words to protect Eastern's L-1011 fleet came true. In the years following the crash, up until the airline's closure, there were no other fatalities uh, fatalities on board the TriStar fleet. Whether you believe in ghosts or not, it is nice to think that those dedicated pilots may have kept the rest of the TriStar fleet safe. So the next time you're sitting aboard a plane and you feel a chill, take a look around. If you see someone sitting in a pilot's uniform, be sure to take a closer look. It could well be the ghost of Captain Bob Loft or Second Officer Don Repo keeping watch and making sure your flight arrives safely. 
Nice. A good Samaritan. A good Samaritan goes. I like that. Yeah, I like like that. I like that. Good story. While we wait for a third story to pop up, here are some uh, weird Halloween facts. Um, Of course, dressing up like uh, Nancy said was originally uh, to uh, to uh, uh, scare off uh, evil spirits. The spirits wouldn't recognize humans. That's why they used to dress up with the animal skins. Did you know that jack-o'-lanterns were originally made of turnip? They'd be tiny jack-o'-lanterns, wouldn't it? When, when the, when the uh, because it was an Irish thing, so when it happened, it came to North America, pumpkins were more, much more plentiful and easier to use. I'm happy they made the switch. <laughs> In 2012, the tur- turn turnip pie. pie doesn't, the turnip pie is not yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> Ew. Oh, that's, that's a horror. That doesn't sound that's a horror story right there. <laughs> turnip good. pie. In 2012, a postman saw a body. Thought it was uh, on the on the stairs of a house. Thought it was a decoration. Turns out it was the resident who had died on the steps. No. Oh my gosh. Oh, no. Good decoration. Yes. Realistic. Very realistic. <laughs> If you bite into a Halloween cake, which is an American tradition, and you hit a thimble, you'll be unlucky in love. Hmm. Why would there be a thimble in a cake? Americans what? don't cook very well. What is a Halloween cake? Oh, it's an American tradition, apparently. It's, I guess it's like Christmas cookies, Halloween cake. Hmm. I don't know. I, know. I know they have funny things like that in Louisiana, but that's kind of a new one to hmm. me, too. Mike Myers' mask in the Halloween movie was actually a mask of William Shatner. Seriously. Yes, it cost $2 at the time and they painted it white. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Halloween in Germany, uh, they hide the knives so that returning spirits don't injure themselves. What? They yeah. hide the what? Knives. Oh. They, they hide knives. In Italy, <laughs> there is an oval cookie called a Favi del Morti, which is called Beans <laughs> of the Dead. Okay. <laughs> uh, odds are that if you, your treats are poison, it's actually your relative. That actually only happened twice, in 1970 and in 1974. The old razor blade or the old yeah. poison candy yeah. only actually happened twice and it was done by a relative. Oh my gosh. Wow. Can you imagine? Yeah. All right. Moving on to our next little story. I guess that's me. Okay. This is the perfect, absolute perfect ideal ghost story for scouts and um rangers what do they what do they call the 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 scouts in in canada they're not boy scouts they're boy uh, they're not boy guides are they but this is this is this is absolutely has every every element that you that you'd love in a in a ghost story so here we go this is called the wishing well And the Wishing Well is a scary ghost story about a group of Boy Scouts who go camping near a haunted field. And it's based on an old horror story by M.R. James. And originally it was called The Wailing Well. Here we go. Many years ago, there was an exclusive boarding school in England that had a scout troop. The leader was a teacher, and one weekend a month, he would take the scouts on a camping trip. There was one young boy in the scout trip that was very disobedient and disruptive. His name was Stanley Jenkins, and he was always getting into mischief. No matter how many times the teacher told him, he would never listen. One weekend, the scouts went camping in the English countryside. They got permission to set up on a farmer's land. 
The spot was on a ridge overlooking a deep valley. The teacher warned the boys not to go off wandering on their own and told them that under no circumstances were they allowed to go down into that valley. While the teacher and the other boys were pitching the tents, Stanley Jenkins and his friends were sitting around in the grass. They were too lazy to help set up the camp. Instead, they went looking for some kind of mischief they could get into. As Stanley Jenkins gazed down into the valley, he noticed a field that was surrounded by a barbed wire fence. In one corner of the field, there was an old stone well. It looked like the field was never used and was overgrown with weeds and brambles. Just then, they saw the farmer who owned the land coming along with his dog. As he passed by, Stanley Jenkins waved at him and the farmer stopped to talk. What's in the field down there? asked Stanley Jenkins. The one with the well inside it. That's the wishing well, the farmer replied. But you're not allowed to go down there. I hope your teacher told you that. Wishing well, said Stanley Jenkins. You mean if you throw some money into the well, you can make a wish? The farmer let out a grim laugh. I wouldn't know, he said. That's what they call it. But nobody around here goes near the wishing well. And in all the years I've lived here, I've never set foot in that field. What's the matter with it? asked Stanley Jenkins. All I know is the cows and the sheep keep away from it. Even my old dog wouldn't go through that field, and neither should you boys if you got a brain in your heads. They say it's haunted. Haunted? Stanley J Jenkins scoffed. Haunted by whom? Three women and a man, said the farmer. Who are they? asked Stanley Jenkins. It all happened before my time, said the farmer. But I was told they died in the well, or were found dead in it. I saw them once. It was twilight, and I was standing on this very ridge. My old dog saw them, too. They came out of the bushes and went crawling around, four of them. Black sand, white bones. It seemed as if I could hear their bones clacking as they moved. I couldn't make out any faces. All I could see was their teeth. The boys let out a collective gasp. Stanley Jenkins chuckled. What happened then, he asked. I don't know, said the farmer. My old dog took off running, and I took off running after him. So take my advice, boys. Stay clear of that wishing well if you know what's good for you. With that, the farmer tipped his hat and walked off. The boys stared after him. What a load of bull, said Stanley Jenkins. I don't believe a word of it. The next evening, the teacher gathered the scouts and did a head count. He noticed one of the boys was missing. After a roll call, he discovered that the missing boy was Stanley Jenkins. None of the other scouts seemed to have any idea where he was. Then one boy spoke up. Maybe he went down to the wishing well, sir, he said. The teacher's face went pale. The wishing well, he gasped, but you were all given strict instructions not to go down there. The scouts followed their teacher as he walked up to the top of the ridge and looked down into the valley below. The light was fading and it was getting cold, but there wasn't a breath of wind in the air. Can anyone see him? The teacher asked. There he is, said one of the boys, getting over the barbed wire fence. Do you see him? Yes, it's him, said another boy. I recognize his sweater. <gasps> now he's making his way toward the wishing well. That little idiot, the teacher growled. 
At that moment, one of the boys let out a high-pitched scream and covered his eyes. What's that black thing on the path, cried another boy, crawling on old four, says, it's a woman. Oh, God, don't let me look at her. Stop it, said the teacher loudly. Get a hold of yourselves. I'm going down there. Hancock and Fartleby, you run to the farmer's house and call for help. The rest of you boys stay here and don't move. The teacher ran off, leaving the boys alone on the ridge, staring down at the field below. To their horror, they saw another black figure emerge from the bushes, then another, and another. They saw Stanley Jenkins making his way toward the wishing well. He didn't seem to notice the black figures approaching him, shuffling forward with their arms outstretched. The boys started yelling as loud as they could, trying to warn him. As he reached the wishing well, Stanley Jenkins seemed to hear their cries. He suddenly stopped and turned around. Then he let out a scream more piercing and dreadful than any of the boys on the ridge heard, but it was too late. The black figures closed in on him until he was surrounded at all sound at all sides. Then they pounced. The boys spotted their teacher running toward the field. He scrambled through the barbed wire fence, but then he stopped and wouldn't go any further. The farmer arrived with a number of policemen. The boys pointed down at the field below and screamed, They got him! They got him! Over and over again, the policemen ran down into the valley. The headmaster arrived, and all the boys were transported back to the school. Some of them were so traumatized that they later left the school. The teacher stayed there with the police all night. The next morning at dawn, they found what was left of Stanley Jenkins at the bottom of the wishing well. He had been torn to pieces. His parents came to collect the remains. The farmer put up another barbed wire fence encircling the field and erected large signs with danger and keep out written in large red letters. Locals in the area say that the field is now haunted by five ghostly black figures. Three men, a man, and a young Boy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was beautiful. What a story. What a story. It is. It's got all the elements of a great scout uh, scary story, doesn't it? Fantastic. Yeah, it's Fantastic. Now, shouldn't we go over paying just, attention to those elements? Just, <laughs> just paid attention, yeah. Just the thing you want to tell to a bunch of Boy Scouts in the dark, dark woods. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) And it's the kind of story those Scouts will tell to their sons when they get old enough. You just, (laughs) you can't help but hand it down. All right. Continuing on our spooky ghost stories. Kirsten, you're up. Well, I've got a nice little story here. It's not really scary, but it's... uh cute story. I thought it was a very adorable ghost. Very friendly ghost. And it takes place in Vancouver. You sure it's not the uh, tax returns of Donald Trump? Oh, pretty sure. (laughs) (laughs) See, Nancy just about choked on that one. (laughs) 
This story is called A Phantom Roommate. Small, nondescript apartment buildings dot this country's urban landscapes. Although many of these multiple-family residences were constructed in the 1950s, they continue to provide adequate accommodation today for those living on a limited budget. One particular apartment block on West 12th Avenue in Vancouver offered one important added extra. Choosing to live at this address meant that you might have an occasional ethereal visitor. No one had ever been able to figure out who the ghost may have been while he was alive, but at least three residents know that, as a ghost at least, he was a companionable sort of fellow. After a period of adjustment, two men who shared a suite in the haunted building came to quite enjoy the spirit's presence in their lives. Initially, they had no idea what was causing an apparently sourceless shadow to occasionally appear, and they were frightened by it, as people generally would be. Once they realized that the apparition would do them no harm, the pair became quite accepting and even welcoming of their guest. Once that acceptance had occurred, the phantom sometimes also manifested as that strange sensation of not being alone, when reason says that no one else is in the room. The pair of renters might not always have been able to see the phantom's form, but they could hear him as he settled into one or another of the chairs in the living room. They soon got into the habit of offering pleasantries to their invisible invisible visitor in order to acknowledge his arrival. Some months later, and for reasons completely unrelated to the ghost, the men moved on. They left the haunted apartment behind, but never forgot the entity, nor the time that they had spent with him. Many years after leaving that apartment, one of the men happened to meet a woman who had also lived in that building. She too had stories to tell, stories that were eerily similar to his. It seemed that the phantom traveled from one suite to another, socializing to the best of his ghostly ability as he went. Okay, that's Such cool. a Canadian ghost. <laughs> it's a Canadian ghost. Sorry. 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 I love it. As, it. as it accidentally passed through you and you get that chill. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Very social. Very Here's social a flannel. Let the ghostly apologies begin. Here are some more Halloween facts. The word witch actually comes from the old English... I think it's spelled. Uh, I think it's pronounced Wishy, which is spelled W-I-C-C-E, which actually means wise woman. Hmm. Speaking of fears, Samhainophobia. It's the fear of Halloween. You can have a phasmophobia, which is the fear of ghosts, or nyctophobia, which is the fear of darkness. When it comes to kids, fifty percent of all kids prefer chocolate for the candy. Those children are weird. Twenty-four percent prefer non-chocolate candy. And 10% prefer gum. Okay, those like kids are rockets. just messed up. <laughs> <laughs> I like rockets. Yes. And, and to all those American listeners who Smarties. don't know what rockets are. Smarties. In, they don't know the Smarties United either. States. They have M&Ms on there. They don't know. No, no, they have Smarties. Those are what we call rockets. Our Smarties are chocolate-covered like M&Ms. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> in medieval times, an owl was a sign of witches, so they would have a tendency to kill owls. If you heard an owl, it meant certain death for you. But owls That's are so sad. pretty. That's probably why they always run from Hogwarts. It probably There's did, too many owls. It probably also <laughs> did help during the uh, the bubonic play, the black play, right? Because if something would kill a rat, an owl would be a, a cat and the rat and the owls, right? 
Uh, the That's largest, so sad. The largest pumpkin was uh, grown by a guy named Norm Craven in 1933. It weighed 836 pounds. Oh. That is a big pumpkin. That is a big pumpkin. That's a not lot of true pie. anymore. Oh, there's a new record? Oh, they're up in the 2000 range. Oh, well, okay. Never mind then. Ha <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Halloween has been called All Hallows' Eve, like Nancy said, Witch's Night, Lamb's Wool, Snap Apple Night, Samhain, or how did you pronounce it? Sewin. Sewin, sorry, thank you. And Summer's End. There's an old superstition that said if you were looking in a mirror at midnight on Halloween, you would reveal it would reveal your boyfriend's face. Oh. That's sad. Yes. What if you don't want a boyfriend? <laughs> don't look in the mirror. It's that simple. No, no, but what if you want a girlfriend? <laughs> look in a different mirror. <laughs> Look in the mirror in your closet. Yeah, okay, that works too. <laughs> bonfires were common, but the funny thing is the Druids used to throw cattle bones in the fires to ensure the return of the sun. So bonefire became bonfire. Uh, oh, I always thought the bon might have something to do with the French good. Like it a could good have been, yeah. yeah. So this it just is, shows to go, yeah. When the, you're wrong, you're wrong. The earliest origins of Halloween would date back at 4000 B.C., it's a very old tradition now. And Boston has the jack-o'-lantern record. They All, all of them lit at once. They had 30,128 wow. jack-o'-lanterns lit. That's a lot. What a fire Boston. hazard. In Boston. <laughs> by, by the way there, Kevin. Yep. Benny Meyer. Mayor? Yep. A Swiss accountant by day grew a pumpkin that weighs in at 2,323.7 pounds. All right. Well, sorry, Norm. Oh. You've just been dethroned. <laughs> uh, that a, story was from 2015. That's a big, big pumpkin. All right. Any one of you guys actually seen a ghost or you think you ever came in contact with a ghost or something like that? No. No? <laughs> We're too skeptical for that, right? There's an explanation for it. <laughs> I once heard a cat meow that nobody else in my family heard when I was a kid. I once heard a crow that I swore was real, (laughs) but nobody else around me heard it. And I was like, what's going on? (laughs) Why can I hear a crow and nobody else can? Oh, goodness. All right. Tinnitus. (laughs) Okay, so before we move on to our guest, let me tell you a few other Halloween trivia. Did you guys know that in the U.S. in 2014, for example, uh, 1.3, 1.31 billion pounds of pumpkins were produced? That's a lot. That's a lot of pumpkin pie. <laughs> in 2013, 41 million trick or treaters, we're talking about 50, five to 14 year olds, spent one billion dollars on costumes. By 2014, it was three billion dollars on wow. costumes. Wow. There is 35 million pounds of candy corn that is produced every Ew. year. Ooh. Why? <laughs> candy corn's so gross. It's a classic. Consumers apparently spent $5.8 billion in 2010 and $7 billion by 2015 on oh. Halloween. Harry Houdini, the legendary magician, died on Halloween in 1926 <gasps> from a ruptured appendix from taking a punch oh. to the gut. Uh, the National Retail Foundation says that 64% of the uh, of Americans have actually celebrated the, ho- the holiday in 2015 and spent on average $74 per adult on candy costume and decor. Back Sounds in my right. day, we wow. used to make candy our alone. Yep. <laughs> Halloween has surpassed Valentine's Day, as Good. far as candy is concerned. 90 million pounds of chocolate 
is actually spent <laughs> $1.9 and $1.9 billion spent on candy, which is twice Valentine's. Well, the thing with Halloween candy is there's such a variety. And children. Valentine's kind of just Yeah, there boring. is such a variety of children. Like, if you don't like chocolate, you can get, like, Skittles. <laughs> now, apparently Halloween cars are a thing. Now, according to Hallmark, $20 million, uh, sorry, 20 million cars each year are made for Halloween. Weird. Christmas, though, is $1.5 billion. <laughs> Christmas yeah. cars are way, way over. Um, in Belleville, Illinois, kids over 12 years old caught trick-or-treating can face a $100 to $1,000 fine. What? You're not allowed to trick-or-treat. That, that is After just mean. Age? 12. After 12. I was yeah. trick-or-treating I at like 15. I give to adults. No, that's the, I, I'm, I have a feeling that's probably because all the vandalism on Halloween oh, okay. is generally it, kids who are, you know, between, what, 13 and 19 years yeah, old. Yeah, but the thing is, the kids doing the trick-or-treating aren't vandalizing. They're getting candy. <laughs> it's when they aren't trick-or-treating that they're like, well, I've, I've seen adults come toy, around toy in costume with the kids, and I, I, I have to give candy to the adults. I mean, I can't. Yeah. All right, and we'll be right back with our guest, Andrea Garachin, and we'll be talking about uh, the devil. So stay with us. Hi, I'm the Supreme Irreverend Dr. Randy Tyson from the Legion of Reason Diversion. Join me and my co-hosts, Christine Shelska, Twyla, and Nate Phelps, as we explore issues at the intersection of atheism, humanism, and skepticism. Topics range from alternative medicine to the interference of religion in public policy. We often have special guests to help us understand the topic du jour. Previous guests include biologist Jerry Coyne, ex-Muslim author Ali Rizvi, philosopher Peter Bogosian, and the late physicist Victor Stanger. You can watch us on the Legion of Reason YouTube channel or subscribe to the audio version through your favorite podcatchers such as iTunes or Stitcher. And don't forget to like the Legion of Reason Facebook page. is Andrea Garachin. She's a former Christian fundamentalist. She's now an atheist. She spent the past decades as a Bible researcher with a focus on biblical Hebrew and understanding the gods of the Old Testament. She's a snappy dresser and a snazzy dancer. Andrea, thank you so much for joining us on Left of the Valley. It's so good to see you, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Uh, you've only been there for two minutes. You don't know yet. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know what you've gotten yourself into yet. <laughs> Thank, thank you so much for, for calling us all the way from Australia. Andrea, uh, you, you're making quite a name for yourself in the United States. You might not be as well known up here north of the 49 parallel. Would you be so kind to give our audience a quick Reader's Digest version of who you are? Sure. Um, I was uh, born into a very Christian fundamentalist home. My dad is a minister. Um, by the time I was 12, I was um, very deep into um, fundamentalist uh, Baptist sort of of the Southern Baptist type, um, thanks to some American missionaries uh, that came to Australia. Um, I left the that movement and went into Pentecostalism, um, but from a very young age I was singing in church 
And so throughout my, basically my adult life till the age of 35, I was a worship leader, singer, songwriter, um, and uh, sort of heading, heading the ministry in um, you know, churches, uh, doing all the singing and, and the worship sets. So that sort of occupied my life, but um, I constantly had questions just running and doubts running in the back of my mind that like good uh, Christian girls, I suppose <laughs> people, you sort of push down and say, oh, that's the devil, yeah. <laughs> um, it, you know, trying to tempt me or whatever. But it just got way too much. And I started to take uh, more time. I mean, I, I was an avid reader of the Bible anyway. But by the time I left my Christian faith, I, I had started to look into the original text and um, I didn't like what I found. And so I left my faith by praying on my knees. And then as soon as that was over, immediately over, I asked the question, well, who are the gods of the Bible? In particular, the Lord God, which I will refer to as Yahweh Elohim. And that's what I've been doing for the last 12 years, um, looking into, researching, studying, um, trying to get my degree and moving on towards other types of uh, scholarship uh, to answer these questions and um, to give shed some light, I suppose, into what the Bible really says about these gods. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, today we're going to be talking, because this is our Halloween episode, we can't not talk about the devil I mean, the devil here, the devil there. Heck, I've been called a devil a few times myself. <laughs> so maybe you you can give us, you know, the the classic um, origin story of the devil. Yeah, sure. Well, I I really look at it from um, uh, the lens of the Hebrew Bible now, but from a you know a, a perspective of of being a Christian that I once was, um, we have a you know a set of theology, I suppose, or doctrine um, about uh, Satan. Um, and so we're sort of told certain things, uh, mainly that that um, the devil was the serpent in the garden. He's the, 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 um, the fallen angel, uh, the, the brilliant Lucifer, if you like. Um, and these are all Old Testament sort of references as well. And these, all these sort of pieces of scripture are all sort of bundled in together. And then, voila, we're presented with this, the New Testament Satan that comes to steal, kill and destroy um, you know, people. And in particular, hunt down the Christian to sort of wear them out and, and uh, lead them astray. Well, um, it's not like that at all. And the, the, I suppose the, 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 the starting off stories or passages in the Bible from the Old Testament are nothing like what we're presented from the pulpit. And um, it's, it's very concerning, I suppose, because people, even after they've left their faith, um, still carry around fear and sort of have, have doubts and troubles to do with the area of Satan and of the devil and of hell and all the consequences that get wrapped in with the Satan idea. So that's sort of 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, people get really, really attached <laughs> to the character, right? I mean, the character makes more appearances in modern culture than 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 mm-hmm. the 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 light side of the force, if you wish, or God ever did, right? I mean, you got you got mm-hmm. the the version of uh, the devil in many movies. You don't see a version of God in movies, right? You don't. You always see the bad guy. You never see the good guy. You only see a light and a a music or some kind, <laughs> right? It's so. What, 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 why are we so fascinated with the bad guy here, or the supposed well, bad guy? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a good question. I think that um, we are sold um, our Western culture um, and a Eurocentric sort of cult, um, sort of idea has come through to us um, that there is a an arch enemy, a bad, an evil um, that um, you know we want to pin um, all of the ills of the world on. I suppose as a as a as a sort of scapegoat. And um, and we can um, put blame on on that that agency, and also I think what the, the you know religion has done very well, uh, Christianity in particular, of course, is um, is use this character as the stick. It's it's the weapon. It, they weapon they've weaponized, I suppose, this devil, this this Satan character, as the fear factor that motivates people into faith. Uh, if there's one thing Christians are good, it's making you miserable. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so, but the, but the uh, the uh, the current image that we have of the devil, Lucifer, and and all that is not the same image that's been portrayed of him all throughout his <laughs> illustrious career. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there is. There's been an evolving um, sort of, I suppose, motif, um, and my. My area of sort of study, if you like, because I'm I'm into the Hebrew Bible, is is well, what does it say? What do Christians want to say? You know, what does Christian theology or doctrine want to say that the devil uh, attributing to Satan from the Old Testament perspective, and then 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 later on, of course, that all morphs and changes as we move into Judaism and then through into Christianity and. You know, we've got this other product at the end that's got nothing to do with what the the original, you know, the the, the, the the sacred text of Christianity from its the earliest writings says. And there's a contradiction, and that's a problem, hmm. and not many people know this. <laughs> so, so for example, if we if we uh, if we separate Christianity from uh, Judaism and its roots, mm-hmm. was there is there a different version of uh, the devil for the uh, in Jewish folklore? Um, well, actually, I don't know too much about Jewish folklore. I, I do know, and we can certainly go through all of the aspects of what Christianity picks up in the Hebrew Bible, and there is a distinction, I might say, between, you know, the Yahwist cult of the you know, pre-First um, Temple sort of um, um, Israelite culture, uh, and then, you know, what, what, what happened post-exile. So there's sort of, you know, there's a lot of nuances there that are going on. So um, I, don't, I can't speak a lot about Jewish uh, sort of ideas about Satan, but I can certainly say what the Bible says. So I know it sounds weird. But there is a that, that, that there is a distinction between the two. Hmm. Okay. If that makes sense. 
Yeah. <laughs> so go ahead and give us the, the, those distinctions as for uh, as how you see them. Sure. Okay. So, I mean, when we, I, I call, I sort of call this whole area the Satanic Trinity, which you know sort of you know plays on you know the Holy sort of Trinity. Yeah. Because we, I love we it. Do, Hmm. Yeah, because we end up with three main areas uh, that Christianity wants to hook onto in the Tanakh or the, the, the Hebrew Bible. The first one, the most typical one, I even heard someone the other day on some other podcast talk about this. They say, oh, the, you know, the devil, the Satan in the Garden of Eden. Uh, and they want to say, and, and seems as though a lot of Christians think this, that the serpent that's just, that's talked about in chapter two and three is about, or three is about um, Satan. So that's the first thing. So we've got what we what we actually have is in Hebrew the word for uh, serpent is nachash, and never is it called Satan. Uh, in the Bible, and I'll get to what Satan is actually sort of means in Hebrew in a minute. But um, so you've got this character in in um, in the Genesis story in the Garden of Eden that's talking and walking, and I and I even hear sort of you know secular people like you and uh, you know like us say, oh, you know, there was a walking, talking snake. That's that's not you know how how that's just fantasy. And although I don't subscribe at all to the mythologies of the Old Testament. Um, I actually don't think that the Nahash is an animal. Mm. I think it is actually a type. I think the biblical writers elsewhere in the text actually talk about these Nahash as being weaponized um, agents of Yahweh. They go around and slaughter. And uh, later on in the in the books in uh, sort of Isaiah and further on, they actually go through cities and kill people so they're not it's not a snake it's hmm. it's actually an, a, a sort of where we're made to the, the portrait is later on in other in other references if you get what i'm saying is that it's like a human type person um that, that's doing this work so this is why they're talking <laughs> and why they're saying things and why they're saying true things about the elohim about yahweh and saying that Yahweh is tricking you, you're not going to die, Adam and Eve, when you eat of this, you know, whatever this thing is called fruit. Um, so, so that's number one. This is not Satan. So, shall I talk about what actually Satan is? Well, by all means. <laughs> so, in Hebrew, the word Satan is Satan, and it literally means adversary. It's a job title, not a person. People take on the role of Satan when they're involved in certain activities in the Hebrew Bible. Mm. Okay? So there, this is the first misunderstanding of the word Satan. So, um, for example, the word Satan or the adversary, Hasatan, is mentioned in Job. Do you know the, the text in Job there? Yes, yes. So, that's so, so we get this verse where it says, well, the sons of God came into the presence of Yahweh, in the presence of the Lord, and it says and in, in English, and Satan was amongst them. So it says in Hebrew, and Hasatan was amongst them. So in other words, 
this Hassatan, who we don't know his name, we just know that he was an adversary to Yahweh because of what he says in, in, in the following verses, turns out he's the son of a god. Ooh. Now, in, yeah, that's what the, the verse literally says. He's a son of the Elohim. Now, that is, flies in the face of everything sacred to Christianity because the implications are just, you know, there's just all kinds of things going on here. So first of all, how come there are sons of God? Well, we know that from earlier verses in Genesis, but that contradicts what um, John three sixteen says. Mm-hmm. When you know, so Jesus is supposed to be the only son of God. Well, not according to Job. There's a lot of them, and Satan's one of them. Well, that's you know that just throws everything out. So, so we we know then that he was just an adversary, and then on, and then the next thing you know, they're they're cutting a deal about how they can play games with Job. Yes, and see how, you know see how much he sort of you know will show his faithfulness to to Yahweh despite being wiped, nearly wiped out by this adversary character. Which God lets him do. <laughs> so it's not as if, you know... And of course, Job is one of the uh, the oldest book in the Bible, as we know it at this point, right? Um, so, uh, I suppose some scholarship would say that. Um, I'm not sh- sure exactly. Oh. I, I, I actually only was the other day I heard something different. So <laughs> it, could, it could be. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but, but in any case, that this is what the writer, you know, the redactor or the writers of Job have said about... This Hasat, this Satan, this Satan, or this person, this son of God, that's performing the role. So that's the that's that's the second sort of part of the Trinity. So we've got the snake, the Nahash, then we've got the Hasatan from um, Job. The third part of this Trinity, as I said, is the Lucifer character or personification. So you know we're all sort of. You know, in, in, in the Christian mindset, we all think, oh, Lucifer is Satan. I mean, would that be something that you'd say is fair enough? Yeah, it's, it's very common. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that, that verse is found in um, Isaiah chapter 14. But when we have a good close look at it, and again, um, we find that the, the, you know, the doctrine that, uh, of, that Christianity sometimes puts together, like the doctrine of Satan, is very cherry-picked. So you get verse 12 that says, oh, um, you know, oh, Satan, uh, sorry, oh, Lucifer, not, Satan's not mentioned at all, um, which is in Hebrew, um, Helel. Uh, so it's, you know, this Lucifer word is not even Hebrew. Mm-hmm. It comes, I think, comes from the Vulgate or Latin or something. So, um, so we've got um, this character that in verse 4, further up in that chapter, we're told is the king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar the second. So, you know, how is it possible that that um, Satan is Nebuchadnezzar the second? Uh, so that that's just another another part of the you know the 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 Trinity, the Satanic Trinity, debunked in a, in a few seconds just by reading the actual chapter where this is mentioned. Um, the other, the other linking um, sort of part of doctrine, if you like, that Christianity hooks onto in the Lucifer category, if you like, is in Ezekiel uh, in chapter 28, where um, there it's, it's, there's a reference to the anointed cherub 
that covereth. I don't know if you know that verse. And everyone's like, oh, you know, that there'll be messages from the pulpit on the anointed cherub that covereth, and that's supposedly Satan and Lucifer and the snake and, you know, all this sort of thing. But if again, if we look up further, we find that that's the king of Tyre, uh, King Haram. Again, not not the you know what not what you'd expect uh, when you when you go to satanic doctrine so so and there's a whole lot of bundling in with, with both of those lucifer and the anointed cherub if you go through the descriptions you've got some weird things going on for sure but that just raises other questions that that put put uh you know challenge other types of other theological sort of positions of Christianity. So it's just a, a can of worms, really, when you start to go into, um, you know, the actual verses that Christians want to say support their doctrine on Satan. I totally understand now. A can of worms, they use the worm to get the fish, and that's why the fish is a symbol of Christianity. There we go. Mystery solved. I love it. <laughs> By, it all by, makes sense now. By the way, the city of Tyre, for those uh, of us that might not know, is that city that was prophesied to be destroyed, never to be rebuilt, and still yeah. exists today. Oh, my God. Prophecy yeah, failed. Right. Oh <laughs> yeah, just yeah. a lot of prophecy like that. Yeah. So, so the, going back to the Al-Satan there, uh, what mm. was, uh, I heard that was a, a Zoroastrian concept, the concept of the, um, the devil's advocate in a way, somebody that speaks for the bad side. Is that really the case? Um, well, you know, I suppose um, again, I'm not, uh, I'm not really an expert on Zoroastrianism, but um, and, and that that could be the case. Um, uh, yeah, uh, I, to be quite honest, I don't, I haven't gone into that side of uh, of the equation. So, because of my narrow, narrow re- research study into into just the Hebrew Bible, uh, I'm sure that that by the time the um, and, I, and I've, I've read this. That, that by the time um, the, um, the tribe of Judah is going into exile, that they're, they're exposed to um, a whole heap of other uh, ideas um, from um, the religion of the Babylonians, so Zoroastrianism. So there's, there's ideas that are starting to filter in to um, Jewish thought, um, post-exile, and then these things are carried through, and they're carried through alongside with Greek, um, you know, classical Greek ideas. Um, and, and then there's just this merger uh, and, and evolving of, of this idea that, that I mean, uh, you've got um, sort of Greek gods that were once, like, for example, Hades, you know, early considered a, a god in the pantheon. Um, and then next thing you know, uh, if you keep on reading the literature, the classical literature, you find that Hades becomes a place, not a person, not a god. Mm-hmm. So you've got all these evolving ideas. The next thing you know, this Hades character is hell, and that's bundled in or so merged in with, um, you know, ideas from, from Christianity and the Sha'ol idea of the Hebrew Bible being being the pit, which is you know rendered in in our in the Bible in the Christian Bible as being hell sometimes. So you know there's there's some little tricks going on um, that all of a sudden we get this idea in the New Testament and moving forward to this day mm-hmm. that aren't that are just aren't weren't what they were. These ideas weren't like that um, hundreds thousands of years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, there's there's so many things wrong with it, the the entire story. I mean, even from a, a layman's perspective, you you look at Adam and Eve and the supposed first appearance of Satan, which of course you'll you'll agree with me that it does never says Satan at all in the passage. It says a serpent, and it's only it's only it's only when you look at Revelation that 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 line that says Oh, Satan, the old snake, and that's how Christians established that there was Satan in the garden to begin with. Uh, uh, simple questions like why is there a tree of knowledge? I mean, is, is does God need to eat a fruit once in a while? I mean, does, if He knows everything, what does He need that tree to begin with? You know, I mean, I, I don't understand these questions. Oh, and don't forget, there was a tree of life as well. That's right. So, so God's like a vegan. <laughs> oh, look! I mean, first of all, you know, do we even want to <laughs> entertain the idea that the whole the whole thing that had you know, some element of truth in it. And if there was, is it really what the, the writers, of, you know, when it comes to the, the trees? And I just spent uh, a, few, a few months ago, I spent quite a few weeks um, looking at that from, a, 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 from a, an analogy or metaphor perspective because there are plenty of verses, we're sort of going off track here, but there are plenty of passages in the Hebrew Bible that give you the key to unlock that metaphor. Plenty of them, and I was shocked as I started to go down that hole, finding out that trees aren't trees, fruit isn't fruit, leaves aren't leaves, um, the wild animals and beasts of the field and the fowl of the air are not beasts of the field and fowl of the air. There are other things. Well, if you start changing every word and every meaning of every word, (laughs) you can make this story tell anything. Well, that's it, but the, the, the actual biblical writers do that, though. They actually say... In certain passages, there's a passage in the Psalms. There's some in uh, in the in the prophets later on that actually say, "Yeah, the trees are this, and the and the fruit is you know not not the fruit, but the trees are this, and the beasts of the field are this." And they basically go, you know, for every sort of uh, part of the analogy, they give it what what the target is, you know, what what it actually should be, and then, oh, yeah, so. <laughs> It's all, and that, and and also remember, well, scholarship says, or most scholars would say that the book of Genesis, especially the end part of it, um, but is is sort of written in in post-exilic or around the exile. So it's it's not as it's not the the first book written. It's it's sort of redacted by the Deuteronomistic writer or redactor, and it's sort of written way. Way long past when when the, when the things actually happened. So if you if you if we were to take what you went through there and you replace you know the, the fowls don't necessarily mean fowls and you replace all these words, does the story start with in a galaxy lo- uh, far far away a long time ago? Is that how it starts? Because I would be really in- interested in all of them. <laughs> Maybe I don't know. Oh, I don't know about that. But it's it, the the story is to do with. The Elohim, and I must say now that uh, I have a very different uh, uh, perspective, if you like, or understanding of what the gods are in the Hebrew Bible uh, compared to Orthodoxy, uh, and also what even most secular people would, you know, um, sort of say about who God is. Mm. So. Um, you know, there's many gods in the Old Testament. Uh, they're called the Elohim. Yahweh is one of them. He thinks he's the best one, and we get the perspective of him through the Christian, uh, through the the Hebrew sacred text. 
So uh, you know, we get we get uh, his side of uh, history, if you like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, I kind of side with uh, Thor myself. <laughs> we like <laughs> Thor. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. I, I yeah, I'm not too keen on him, but <laughs> you don't. <laughs> <laughs> to each their own. I thought older ladies like Thor. No, uh, I'm a fan of Artemis. Artemis, oh, fair enough. <laughs> oh, very nice. <laughs> I, love, I, love, I love that theme where there's this uh, this uh, this uh, meme of uh, Jesus where Jesus has got his hands outstretched. He says, "Come at me, bro!" And then you see Thor with his hammer, and next thing you know, he's nailed onto a cross. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, so Andrea, the the devil throughout the ages. So, so has he? Uh, when you look at your studies in the Bible, did he evolve himself as a character as well? Well, he doesn't exist. Well, yeah, of course not. Is, is my is my is my, my 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 message would be in the Hebrew Bible. The I call him the classic Christian Satan <laughs> is not there. He just he's just not there. Um, and I'll give you some other reasons other than just this, this trinity of the snake and, and Job's you know, son of God, Satan, and the Lucifer character. We've also got uh, times where uh, Satan is actually God. Oh. So there's a, a, a contradiction between two verses, one in Second Samuel 24, which says that Yahweh, the Lord God, moved King David to number Israel, uh, to number Israel and Judah, to, to actually count the people in a census. Mm-hmm. So that verse says that Yahweh did that, right? The Israelite deity. But in First Chronicles, chapter twenty-one, the same story is repeated. But in that verse, verse one, it says, "And Satan stood against Israel and provoked David to number Israel." It's the same story. One is God doing the doing the provoking, and one is Satan, as it's rendered in your English Bible, doing the doing the um, the provoking. So, which one is it? How how is it that God can also be Satan? Because in the Christian, you know, paradigm, that's impossible. Is it is but, it is it possible that uh, God is unionized and he went on strike, and then the scab came in <laughs> in the form of Satan? Psychological issues. No, no, it's <laughs> in, in my hermeneutic, if you like, in the way I interpret the Bible, this is not a, even a contradiction. I'm doing Christianity a favor here mm. because the word Satan is the word adversary in Hebrew. That's what it means. The time means adversary. So, in in this sense, the Lord God became um, resistant to King David. He became King David's adversary in that moment, just in that moment, and caused him to do something. You know, God does do these crazy types of things. He made, you know, Pharaoh harden his heart. You know, how crazy is that when he wanted to let the people go and yet he gets Pharaoh not to by hardening, whatever that means, hardening his heart. So so we've we've got a place, so we've got that where God is named Satan. So clearly, either God is Satan, which just destroys Christianity in terms of its theology, or Satan doesn't mean Satan <laughs> in, Chris, in the Christian mindset. 
Okay, and I'm, I, I would be here to say that's the ladder, and that's why there's no Satan character because every time the word Satan appears, we're talking about an adversary that's taking up a job role in that moment. There's another another story, you know, the story of the, the talking donkey. Oh, yes, Balaam and his donkey. Balaam, as they want to call I know quite a few talking donkeys. <laughs> He's looking at me when he says that too. I hate that. I only look at you with a gleam in my eye, Kevin. <laughs> This talking donkey with the with the prophet of Baal, the Baalim on there. Uh, Baal is Baalim his name is in English, and he he um the uh, there's an angel that actually stands in the way as of the donkey's going, and the donkey gets really upset and gets angry, and he starts telling off the guy on his back. But the angel literally says, "I am Satan." Um. Uh, I basically, and um, the angel says, so let's get this right, I went out to, in English it says, I went out to withstand you. That's what it says in English, to say the King James Version. The word withstand is the word Satan, mm-hmm. Satan. So the, in this verse, the angel literally saying, I am Satan to you. And of course, he's not Satan. There's no Satan character. He's playing the role of the adversary. So he's saying, I'm, I have come here to be an adversary to you. So again, and because, because even the translators know that, they haven't, transla- they haven't transliterated, right, say the word Satan or the word Satan. They've not done that like they did it in Job. Oh, they want to transliterate all of a sudden Satan into Satan and make this character, yeah? That's what that that's the trick that they play, but they haven't done it here because they know it. That's not that's not what's going on, and they're being honest for once. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's that's that that these are examples of that that go towards no Satan in the Old Testament, uh, no Christian Satan. Um, so yeah, there there are verses like that. King David is called a Satan. Um, there's a, a place there where he, King David, decides he wants to actually go and fight with the Philistines um, one time, and the Philistines call him Satan. Um, but again, it's not rendered like that in English in your English Bible because that wouldn't be kosher to call David Satan because it doesn't fit with the theology or mm-hmm. the or the doctrine. So all of a sudden, he's not called that anymore. He's just called an adversary, which is exactly what it is every time. Well, that really that really throws Christianity up on its head, doesn't it? All this information. It, it like I said, it, it opens the can of worms in that it questions everything about it. It questions what you know. Well, well, well what what is going on? And just does, does this Yahweh character really have a a, a, a um, sort of an arch adversary. Um, well, if not, it seems like no. Only through the Hebrew Bible are are these you know individual um, adversary or Satan types you know popping up here and there. They're always different. Sometimes they're kings of other countries. Sometimes it's God Himself. Sometimes it's a, another human or a, a King David, for example. It's littered with the, these satans. So there's no one particular one that's always there lurking, as you would, as the Christian religion would have you believe. Mm. Interesting. You so, yeah. So by the time you get to the New Testament, what the hell is going on? 
with Satan all of a sudden, uh, all of a sudden throughout all of history that's happened, human history, now in the in the Roman Empire, uh, you know, Roman occupied Judea, all of a sudden now you've got a Satan running around with Jesus occasionally, <laughs> attempting him in the, in the desert? I don't think so. You know, I think a weekend with Satan would probably be more fun than a weekend with Jesus, I would think. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so, so Andrea, I guess, I guess, I guess the, the the only way if you really stumble, the only way you're really sure it's Satan is if you meet him in Georgia and he's got a golden fiddle. Then you know for sure it's him. But otherwise, you can't be sure, right? And it's burning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the microphone I can see here on your website. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Andrea, thank you so much for explaining to us uh, the devil in his details. Uh-huh. <laughs> but the mic is all yours, dear. If uh, if uh, if you got uh, something coming up or you want to plug yourself, go right ahead. Be shameless. Um, no, I've, I've, I've got nothing coming up. <laughs> I just, yeah, I'm just, I'm just constantly in the books. That's all. <laughs> so so you next you next uh, feel the study there. Uh, you you keep uh, studying the ancient gods. Is there a particular field you're studying right now? Well, yeah, look, I mean, while I'm not, um, you know, um, at uni doing <laughs> doing writing papers or whatever, um, on the breaks, I suppose, um, I've, I've got a, a long-standing project that, that I've been working on and uh, spent a lot of time on actually this year in particular. But, um, look, my, my interest is in, as you say, it's in, in the gods, uh, but it's of the, of, of the Hebrew Bible and that there's a lot of them and they're named. Mm-hmm. Um, but in particular... Uh, Yahweh, the Israelite deity, um, I'm actually very um, passionate about something that is rarely spoken of, um, has sort of attracted a lot of bad press, if you like, over the years because of sort of just wooey elements in our society, if you like. Mm -hmm. But there's a really strong theme that runs through the, the Hebrew Tanakh that I want to address sort of in an academic way. And, and that is, um, in Hebrew, it's called the Rechev of, of Yahweh, or the chariot, the chariot of God, Ooh. the chariot of Yahweh. And, and what it is, how it pops up, what it does, and... And, uh, and and this is you know just from a it's not I'm not saying I believe it I'm just saying this is what the Bible says, and it's just ignored and it's just pushed aside and it, to me it's a game changer uh, for anyone that would still believe in the tenets of Christianity and believe that you know the Lord God is their God and Savior to to have a look at this idea of God having a chariot it just changes everything as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> it certainly does. And if he was to have a modern chariot today, I picture him having a Volvo for some reason. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, but no, yeah. no, a Tesla. Uh, no, he Why is not Swedish that car. energy. Of, he, he doesn't care about the planet that much. <laughs> it's not about the planet. It's about how fast it can accelerate. He wants a Tesla. <laughs> no. Andrea, before I let you know. What? <laughs> what, a Hummer? Oh yeah, sure, why not? Andrea. He's compensating for something. <laughs> Oh, yeah. The comments of Christina are not necessarily don't want to let the Valley Spears. <laughs> Send your complaints to floor three, Nancy. <laughs> Andrew, my dear, thank you so much for your time. Yeah. We really appreciate all your, your wisdom and all that. Um, before I let you go, i got to have you say, Hi, I'm Andrew Garretchen, and I took a left at the Valley. Hi, I'm Andrea Garretchen, and I took a left at the Valley. And that was Andrea Garretchen. 
What a fantastic source of information for everything you need to know about the devil. Alright, let's finish off the night with a creation from yours truly. I call this seaweed. Enjoy. It's a gorgeous night. The serenade of the wave embraces my ears. The sea emanates a mist, creating dampness upon my troubled brow. I cannot move. Well done, Ben. God, how I loathe my brother. It was common knowledge that my little brother Ben was afraid of seaweed. Naturally, we terrorized him with it. A piece in his bed, a piece in his shoe, and my favorite, pieces in his bathing suit. Every time, we were guaranteed a scream and a scramble as he tried to get the seaweed away from his delicate self. He was so pathetic, so weak. He rather disgusted me. Wah, 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 he's fragile, Mom would say. I always derived some satisfaction in tormenting him. Creepy, wet, slimy seaweed was easy and plentiful at our seaside house. I'll fully admit that we were bullies back then. We didn't know what it was, that it was wrong. We just thought it was funny. And since Ben nervously laughed it off at the end, even if he cried when it was happening, we thought it was okay to continue. Kids will be kids, right? I was the oldest and therefore the biggest. Ben was always really skinny and small. I could manhandle him pretty effortlessly. I'd dunk him on the water, I'd toss him around, all that. I'd also hold him still as my other cousins draped him with seaweed. Oh, how he would scream. Eventually, our parents would get involved. I'd get in trouble. Maybe even catch a beating. But nothing severe enough to dissuade me from tormenting my brother. One summer at our seaside house in California, a little north of San Francisco, tragedy would strike. Before we left, Mom took me aside and said, under absolutely no circumstances was I to tease Ben with seaweed or do anything whatsoever that might provoke his fear of it. It turned out he'd been in therapy for the last few months. I was probably supposed to feel bad, but I didn't. I was 12. I was a dick. Still, I agreed. I wouldn't taunt the poor kid with the stuff. Little shithead. I wish he'd either man up or disappear. The water was a little too cold to go swimming, but still we enjoyed a lot of what the beach had to offer. Cool rocks, tight pools, crabs, and all that. True to my word, I didn't do anything mean to Ben. We all had a pretty good time. On the fourth day, Dad suggested a boat trip for Ben and me to see the seals and maybe even a whale or two. It was just the two of us. I guess Dad wanted to see if I, we could help rebuild this relationship between Ben and me. We'd been getting along pretty well since I'd agreed not to torture him anymore. I reluctantly agreed. Fine, I muttered. I'll protect poor little Ben. We set off at about 10.30 in the morning while our parents attended a lecture about a timeshare that included a free breakfast. We saw a ton of seals. They were interested in the boat and followed us along. There were quite a, col a few colorful fish too. We hung our head over the edge of the boat racing the creatures almost as if we were old friends. A little over half an hour of sailing, the seals and fishes abruptly stopped following us and scattered. 
This is the spot where you see a ton of stuff. I've seen whales, seals, octopods, and even a shark or two around here. What's that shadow? Asked Ben. I peered over the edge. I saw movement below us. What's all that stuff? Ah, oh, I replied. That, Ben, is a kelp forest. Kelp forest? What's a kelp forest? He asked. Great big towers of plant life. Some of it grows almost 200 feet long. Plant life? Repeated Ben, his voice quiet and uncertain. That's right, I replied. This is where you'll find some of the longest and most abundant seaweed in the world. It's also the fastest growing plant on Earth and can grow a foot and a half a day. My gaze shot to Ben, who turned pale. I have to give him credit, though. He didn't scream or anything. He just took a seat on the boat and stared at the floor. I don't feel too well, he said. Can we go home? But the temptation was too great for me. We must be careful here. Many ships have been stuck in these kelp forests. And if you're unlucky enough to fall into the water, this stuff will drag you under. But this little boat is sturdy, right? As I start to rock the dinghy side to side. Stop it, said Ben. What? Can't hear you. As I rocked harder. Stop it, he yelled. As his fear turned into anger, I'll tell Mom. Yeah, you would too, you wuss, I retorted. Immediately following my words, a whale breached, only 30 or so feet away. The seaweed forgotten, Ben hurried to the side and watched, on as the colossal mammal launched itself into the air again and splashed down to the depth. The ripples lapped at the edge of the boat, and I heard wet sounds coming from all directions. I stared at the spot, hoping the whale would leap again. Ben was looking out at a chunk of seaweed on the surface. I knew he was wondering how far down it went. Ben and I stared at the foamy touchdown side of the whale, still hoping he would make an encore leap. As the wave generated by the massive animal hit our small skiff, I was knocked back. All I heard was the lapping sound of the waves and the strange, squishy, wet sound. I whirled around and shouted in surprise and fear, Ben? Ben? A thrashing sound came from overboard. Ben, frail Ben had fallen overboard. In his panic state, he quickly entangled himself in the giant seaweed. Other pieces held his arms and leg, ruining him in a standing position, almost like it was exposing him as an art piece. Ben was wheezing and backing away. The kelp wormed its way around Ben, tightening its grip on him, or so it appeared. The kelp had almost taken on a life of its own. His eyes bulged in a combination of horror and from the terrible pressure being exerted on him. Help! I shouted to no one. I quickly grabbed a small hatchet and looked over the side of the boat. Help him, my conscience begged. But then, not sure why, I retracted my outstretched hand. Was it morbid fascination? Fear? Or maybe I finally wouldn't have to keep protecting Ben. I'd be free of this bothersome burden. Nature selected Ben to be prey, to die quickly, survival of the fittest and all that stuff. It also meant that we'd get all the inheritance from the folks eventually. Soon everything was quiet, save for Ben's torn lungs gurgling every panicked breath. I'd stop calling for help. I sat huddled in the corner of the boat as Ben's form disappeared into the darkness of the unforgiving sea as if pulled deeper by some unseen force.
Before long, a Coast Guard boat came to our rescue. There was an investigation. People believe the story I told them. Ben had fallen, I wasn't able to pull him out. Despite searches, his body was never recovered. I went to therapy for a couple of years, faking missing Ben. Truth was, he was gone, and good riddance. I was the stronger and the survivor. As an adult now, and I've long since apologized for how I've treated him when we were younger. But on this, the 10th anniversary of his death, by a lovely night where the moonlight shimmers on the, over the sea, it's of little comfort. Parents are dead, car accident, or was it? And now it's only me. I've enjoyed the high lifestyle, parties, drugs, and loose women. And whenever some shred of weakness or guilt in my inaction to save Ben rear its ugly head, I would simply drown it in alcohol. Tell us to you, Ben. Your sacrifice gave me a good life. Privately, I've wondered if somehow he knew what that would happen to him, if that was the reason why he was always frightened of seaweed. I guess I'll never know. Still, it makes me wonder what else he was scared of. Last thing I remember before blacking out was stumbling on the porch, drunk, at the memory of poor little Ben. A very unpleasant odor attacked my nose. Pungent, rotting, damp, putrefaction. I could swear I heard the sea moaning, as if a ghost was beckoning me to come closer. Piss off, Ben, you little shit. You got what you deserve. I was too drunk to react to what looked like a pale blue arm dripping with seaweed that reached from my throat in the stillness of the night. All I heard was some awful, inhuman gurgling sound, a desperate plea, a disappointing tone. The mist of the sea upon my brow woke me. Hours had passed. The numbing effect of alcohol still lingers slightly, but my head is clear enough to realize I cannot move. The moon is slowly setting, and with it the high tide has begun in its unstoppable march. I am buried in the sand, and with kelp, up to my neck. It's like the kelp that helped Ben a decade ago. I cannot move. A certain vertigo envelops me as if it's dragging me down. I can feel the spare's cold embrace. The waves will begin to lap in my face soon. I could scream, call for help, but neighbors are miles away. As my mind slowly clears, only to fall within the grip of terror at what will be my inevitable death by drowning, I end up laughing uncontrollably. <laughs> Way to go. I laughed as I stared at a set of small footprints departing from my soon-to-be corpse and heading back, disappearing into the sea. They say drowning is a peaceful death. I doubt Ben will afford me this privilege as all the deafness of the night masks my hysterical laughter. Well done, Ben. Well done, no brother. And that was my story. Spooky! You got a dark well side. Done. You got a dark side did you write there, that? Kevin. I did. I did write that. Ooh, Ooh. Well done! Yeah. So. Man, oh man, you gonna turn that into a graphic novel? <laughs> no, I don't a, think that'd so. That'd make a great graphic novel. That's that's something right out of like Dark Tales. It or, is. Yeah. It is. Tales from the Crypt. Tales yeah. from the Crypt Keeper. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Whoa. Well, thank you so much, guys, for that's joining a, us on the show yeah. today. 
I hope you guys had a fun, spooky Halloween with us. Oh, yeah. Ending with that story was absolutely perfect. Um, Gives me shivers. (laughs) (laughs) You can follow us at leftatvalue.com. You can follow us on at LETV Podcast on Twitter, on Facebook. You can send us an email at leftatvalue at outlook.com. You can send us a complaint at Nancy on the 13th floor this time. Well, not this week because Christine and I are going to go in our two-seated broom and we're, <laughs> yeah. we're not answering any complaints. Tandem broom, I love that. Yeah. We'll start with our broom. black cat yeah. on the back and our owl flying beside You're us. You're not stealing my cat. Yeah. <laughs> I'll bring the owl. Nancy can bring the cat. If you'd be yeah, so absolutely. kind, give us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever else you find the show. That really helps us, but that helps others find the show even better. Coming up... The month is over. Next week, we'll be talking to author David G. McAfee. Oh. And uh, for the 11th, we'll be talking to Andrew Torres. Yes. Of the, uh, was it, no. Opening Argument. Opening Argument podcast. Sorry, sorry, Andrew. And uh, on the 18th, we'll be talking to Luke Feverin. And we also have Thomas Smith. (gasps) Yes. Oh, my God. (laughs) Your favorite. Thomas Smith will be coming to talk to us as well on the show. Also of opening arguments. Of also of opening <laughs> arguments and his other uh, inquiries serious, only. Serious, serious inquiries, inquiries only. only. Yes. And of course, around Christmas, we'll have a Christmas special and our top 10 of the year. Now in the next year, we'll be talking to Michael Shermer and our old friend David Fitzgerald is coming back as well uh, to talk about his great. next book. That was great. Great show, guys. Yay. Bye, Any- guys. <laughs> Anything you guys want to do before we uh, sign off? Just recover from all the spookiness. Okay. Or either that or get deeper into it, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, instead of going out with our our usual theme song, this is Bobby Boris Pickett, the classic Monster Mash. Yes! Until next time. And have a spooky, scary, and safe Halloween night. from his slab began to rise and suddenly to my surprise he did the monster mash it was a graveyard smash it caught on in a flash he did the monster mash from my laboratory in the castle east to the master bedroom where the vampires feast the ghouls all came from their humble Get a jolt from my electrodes. They did the monster mash. It was a graveyard smash. It caught on in a flash. They did the monster mash. The zombies were having fun. The party had just begun. The guests included Wolfman, Dracula, and his son. All the digging sounds He got on chains Back by his playing hounds The coffin bangers Were about to arrive With their vocal group The Crypt Kicker Five They played the Monster Mash It was a graveyard smash It caught on in a flash 
they played the monster man. Out from his coffin tracks voice did ring. Seems he was troubled by just one thing. Opened the lid and shook his fist and said, Whatever happened to my Transylvania twist? It's now the Monster Mash And it's a graveyard smash It's caught on in a flash It's now the Monster Mash Now everything's cool, tracks a part of the band And my Monster Mash is the hit of the land For you, the living, this mash was meant to When you get to my door, tell them what is sent you Then you can Monster Mash And do my graveyard smash You'll catch on in a flash Then you can monster mash Smash! Ooh! Easy, Igor You impetuous young boy Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.